It is uh, good to be with you again today. Hopefully I did not just damage my back. <laughs> if you're a first-time visitor here today, not going to embarrass you, but you just wave at me. Do we have any today? Well, we're glad everybody's here, whether you're here in the flesh or watching online. Just know we care about your presence, and we pray that uh, um, God is going to meet us here as really we continue our series on the lion's roar, but we're going to, I just want to remind you that we've been looking at the book of Revelation from two specific uh, perspectives. One, instead of just coming to the book looking for all the eschatological chronologies, We've been trying to look at how does this book speak to us as disciples of Jesus, not just a battleground for end-time theories and debates. As such, I've been focusing heavily on the exaltation of Yeshua, because if we do not live our lives based on his worthiness, remember last week we talked about Jesus must be the axis of our lives, if we do not focus on his worthiness, then we literally spend our life just walking in circles. Circles without purpose. It's kind of interesting that um, Amos chapter 3, verse 8, from where we get this lion's roar terminology, actually begins with a question. Can two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? A better way to say it is if they are, uh, if they are in agreement that they are to be walking together. You, you, you can't walk with somebody if you disagree with how they're walking or where they're going. And, and it's really a condemnation of the spiritual condition that Israel was in when Amos was prophesying that the judgment was coming because they, they pretended on the outside to walk with the Lord, but on the inside they were no longer walking in agreement with the Lord. We have seen in Christianity and within the Messianic movement, all the flavors, more and more groups that are not walking in agreement with the Lord because they no longer identify who Yeshua is. He is the Son of God. And the minute you stop acknowledging that, you're just walking in circles. And you're not walking by divine appointment with Him anymore. When we walk with him, we walk with him because he is worthy. He is the axis of our lives, and our walk is in sync with his will, his word, and his Holy Spirit begins to work in our lives. That's one way we've been looking at the book. The other is to focus heavily on the victory that is ours because of the victory that was his. To set up, to set us up to be, not to be victims but to begin to see this life as a victorious journey towards his presence. But my victory isn't just about not giving up. It's about giving over my life to his will so that I can be used not only to celebrate what God has done in my life, but that I can actually become a vessel and a vehicle that can take that freedom, take that victory to somebody else who also needs it. I can be the source of introducing people who are victims to victory. The lion's roar of this revelation is to equip me in every way to fulfill God's plan in my life. Now, today we're going to start a two-part kind of mini-series that has a lot of roaring that goes throughout church history. In fact, if you want to start a good theological debate and just get all the church people fussing and roaring at each other, all you have to say is one word, baptism. And the minute I said that word, every one of you who has had any relationship with growing up in the body of Christ, whatever flavor that has been, you instantly have a definition that is ingrained in you about what it is, why it is, when it is, etc. Suddenly, all we want to do is fuss about the issues. Years ago, I was at a summer youth conference, and I was asked to teach an elective. And I was teaching on... I was going to do a teaching on baptism, and I was going to look at it from a Hebraic perspective. And I was standing in line getting ready to go in and register my group. 
And I was chatting with a young youth worker who was there with his church youth group. And he, everything was really pleasant until he found out that I was going to teach an elective. And when he found out what I was going to teach about. And his entire countenance changed. And he looked at me and went from this kind of friendly interaction to kind of this antagonistic, con, you know, controversy. And he said, well, I'm not going to go, but I just have one question. Do you have to be baptized? And I looked at him and I said, son, I am not going to answer that question. No, no, I just want, no, I'm not going to answer that question. And let me tell you why. Because if I tell you that baptism is not essential for salvation, does that make it so? Nope. I can say all kinds of stuff. If I tell you that baptism is essential for salvation, does that make it so? Nope. See, the bottom line is that what Brent Avery says about baptism isn't relevant unless it is reflective of what God's Word has said. Why would I answer such a question? Why would I spend my life looking for the lowest common denominator of what I can do to get by into the kingdom of God? No disciple asks that question. When the master calls you to do something, (laughs) parents, come on, do I have to? Foolish question. All that is essential is for me to tell you what the Lord has revealed in his word about water immersion. And if all you care about is fussing over that one question, you're never really going to come to hear what the Spirit has revealed in God's word about it. And I'm going to show you today, it is phenomenal. All of our questions are answered if we just stop and listen and see what God has been showing to us. And those who do, who truly open your hearts to see and to hear what the Lord has said about this amazing moment in the life of a disciple, well, you may just find your way home. Will you pray with me? Master, in your name, I ask that you would pour out today within us and upon us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you that can only be found in you about this topic. Father, I pray that you will roar louder in our hearts and minds than that which we have heard before, and that we would truly listen not to Brent, but to your voice, to see the vision you have given, to hear the words you have proclaimed, to know your heart. Come and be with us. To your glory. Amen. You know, one of the most profound spiritual Holy Spirit moments I ever had, and I've said it before, so I, I will abbreviate it, was when the Lord woke me up one night and told me to go back and read Isaiah 46.10. I read, I began Isaiah 46.9. It says, for I am God, there is no other, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is yet to come, saying, my purpose shall stand and I will accomplish my good pleasure. So I did as instructed, and I went back to the beginning, and there the Lord began to teach me about the end. But if I can learn about the end, if I can learn about the end from the beginning, I can also learn about the beginning from the end. And that's what we're going to do today. And that is where we are going to go to as we begin our search for a biblical context, if I can understand a thing. How many of you are like me? If you understand a thing, you're, you're, you're more willing to do it. And once you get your brain wrapped around it, the resistance goes away. When you have that aha moment, then it's like, okay, all the fussing, all the noise, all the, it just goes away. It's like, nope, I've heard. So that's what we're going to do today. So let's begin our study of baptism at the end. Revelation chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. 
And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living beings full of eyes in front and behind. And I know what you're thinking at this moment. Really? You're going to start a, a, a message about baptism there? Yep. Let's begin with this question. Does the throne of God have any connection to the subject of water? Because obviously when we're talking about baptism, we're talking about water immersion. Well, let's first remember that the definition of Shemayim, the Hebrew word for water, is built on the word Mayim, which I actually need a drink of right now. Thank you. The Hebrew word Mayim, which is the word for water. The sages of Israel offer the definition of Hashemayim as simply, there is water. Whenever you say heaven, there is water. How many of you want to go to heaven? Well, you need to know if you go, there is water. Interesting. It's already getting deep. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Of course, the term sea instantly connects us to the topic of water and instantly connects us to the throne of God to it. But the description of it reveals far more than what we might first perceive. So let's look at that description. First of all, we're told that it is that John sees something like a sea of glass. Now, again, I don't want, uh, there's a lot of grammar in this, but the grammar helps us learn some things that even the adverb that is used here has something of importance. You see, the adverb in the Greek is host, and it means something that is seen. And we were like, okay, Brent, well, that's obvious. In the Hebrew scripture, the beginning scriptures, if you will, it would be the Lord, it would be the word kimara, which comes from the word ra'ah, which means Something that is seen. Ra'ah means to see. So what am I saying? I'm saying that literally the adverb that is used to tell us that it's like something that is seen is connected to a Hebrew, the Hebrew word for seeing. Now I want to ask you today to zero in on the emphasis that God, not just what God says, but how he says it. He chooses words to emphasize his point. So even a word, I mean, there, he could have chosen any other word, but the word host, this, this Greek preposition connects to a Hebrew preposition that literally means like something that is seen. So what is the emphasis? Look at it. See it. John describes the sea of glass as something that is seen before the throne, literally before the eyes of God. And the word before is the preposition in Greek, enopius. It's, it's the, you, you've heard, you, you use words like, that come from this word all the time. The word optic. How many times do we, we hear in the politicians in the news that someone said something or did something and it was a bad optic? What are they saying? It just didn't look good. You, if you have eye problems, where do you, who do you go see? An optometrist. That's where this word comes from. So the adverb calls us to see what's being seen, and even the word that helps us understand where this sea of glass is positioned is also from the idea of that which is seen. Before the throne can literally be understood as something can literally be understood as something that is in the sight of a more Hebraic way of saying it would be before the face of. So as the adverb emphasizes that this sea of glass is something seen and the preposition emphasizes that before the throne suggests it is something that God sees. Now pay attention here. What does that mean? It is something that God has his full attention on. We've seen this amazing description of the throne of God, but when God sits on his throne, there is something that is before him, and it is that something that has his full undivided attention. And I want to ask you today, if it has God's full undivided attention, does it have yours? If, if it is what God has placed before him on his throne and he invites us to see it and he uses all of these adverbs and prepositions and nouns and verbs to cause us to see it, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you know what? We might ought to open our eyes. 
because there's a really good optic that he's showing us. And we need to search our hearts and and ask ourselves, do I pay attention to what is before the Lord? You know, when Jesus spoke in parables, it exposed those who weren't willing to listen. He would tell a story and you would hear a story. And the parables had this amazing way of kind of exposing those in the crowd who were really listening and those who weren't. When Jesus gives you a prophetic vision or a sign or a revelation and it's something you see, it has the same power, only now it is exposing those who are paying attention, those who are seeing, and those who are not paying attention. It's just the way God's word is. Whatever this sea of glass clear as crystal is, it has God's full and undivided attention, and therefore it ought to have mine. Now, there are three descriptions of what is before the eyes of God that should matter to us as disciples of Jesus. First of all, it is described as glassy. It is like a sea of glass. Is it glass? No. It's a similitude. It's a simile. It is like a sea of glass. So what is he telling us? Number one, it is transparent. You can see through it. God can not only see it, he can see through it. Now, and I'm going to say some of these things over because I want you to lock on to them. If something is transparent, God can not only see it, he can see through it. Hold on to this because we're going to come back to this later. The second description is that it's like crystal. Is it a crystal? No. It is like crystal. And this gives us two understandings about the sea. Not only as a glassy sea is it transparent, but as a crystal sea, it is translucent. What does that big word mean? It means that light can pass through it. So we've got transparent, you can see through it, and we've got translucent, light can pass through it. Third, secondly, and uh, I, I, you know, I'm a preacher, so I alliterate, it is transversible or traversable. What does that mean? It means it's firm enough to stand on. It means someone can, that, that, that you can, it's firm enough to stand on. Now, now you think, now Brent, how do I know this? Well, let's look at the origin, the, the context of the word crystal. The Greek word crystalios is the word from which we get our English word crystal, but it comes from the word crus, which means ice. What is water? What is ice? It is crystallized water. It is, hear me, it is water that is made firm. When the lake freezes, what can you do? Time for some hockey. You can walk on it because it's made firm. The prophet Ezekiel saw this and described it as the awesome ice of heaven. You know, at the church I used to serve, uh, we got a new ice machine. And I loved it because it was, I used to refer to it as, oh man, we have awesome ice. I just knew our church was going to grow because we had an awesome ice machine because it was like the kind of ice you get at Sonic, you know, the crunchy kind, you know, those little, yeah, that's awesome ice. And then I read Ezekiel and I felt ashamed of myself because that's not awesome ice. Listen to Ezekiel's description of awesome ice. Ezekiel one twenty two. Now, before I tell you that verse, let me just tell you, it is in the context of Ezekiel seeing the four living beings, same as that John saw, and then we get a, a picture of where they are positioned. Now, over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads, like awesome 
ice. Ezekiel describes something like an expanse above their heads. The Hebrew word for uh, this expanse is rakia, and it's the word that we translate as the firmament in Genesis chapter 1, verse 6. But wait a minute. This Now, now, now think with me here. There's something wrong here. Because if it, we're talking about the crystal sea, which is before the Lord, upon which the four living beings stand, but Ezekiel is now telling us that the rakia, the firmament, The awesome ice of God is actually seen above them. I won't go into all the details, but I think that's where the rain is pictured by the rainbow encircling the throne. So there is this crystal sea upon which they stand, and there's this firmament of God's glorious crystallized sea above their heads. So how can that be? It's almost like there's a division of the heavenly waters in the throne room. It's almost like you could say there, when you look at the throne of God, you're going to see upper and lower waters. Is is it clicking? Is the Spirit taking you where you need to go even before we get there? Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now we're going to go to the beginning of the Scriptures. Then God said, let there be an rakia, an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from waters. And God made the rakia, the expanse, and separated the waters which were below the expanse, rakia, from the waters which were above the expanse, rakia, and it was so. And God called the expanse, rakia, heaven. There is water. Isn't that interesting? That what God does in creation is a mirror image of what you and I are being shown in his throne. And I'm asking you, are you paying attention to what he is showing you? Because it matters more than we could possibly imagine. I shared last week that the throne of heaven is literally the blueprint of the universe. It's the architectural design of the very planet we live on. In heaven, there is a fixed standing throne, and it is fixed and stands upon that gleaming, awesome, crystallized ice, that firmament to which the four living beings look towards. But there are also the lower waters, the crystal sea upon which they stand. Beneath them is a fixed, transparent, translucent, and traversable sea of glass upon which the heavenly beings stand and walk. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created, when in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, he created this world to be a place where his children, oh, please hear me, could stand. He, he was creating a place, as there is in heaven, where the heavenly beings stand. So he is creating a place upon the earth where human beings can take their stand. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If this crystallized, transparent, translucent, traversable, glassy sea is the focus of God's throne, if it is before him, if it's what has his full attention, then as kingdom citizens, it should have mine. Because he's showing me the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, what is yet to come. When a disciple prays, thy will be done, I am praying that I will see his will come to fruition in my life. But before that can happen, I must fix my attention on what God has fixed his upon. And quite honestly, if I can sidebar for just a moment, that's why the church in the United States is in trouble. Because we are fixated on the world instead of focused on his word. We are fixated with every calamity, every every political debate. We are fixated on what the kingdoms of this world are doing while ignoring the kingdom that he has shown us. 
We're worried about our nation falling when we should be excited about the fact that when it falls, we will be standing forever. And thank you for that amen, because man, I was going to be mad at you. There are just some places where you just can't remain silent. If it's before him, then it's his will and the very thing I should be focused upon. But remember what happens when I take my eyes off of what he has his eyes on. Jesus comes walking on the water in the early hours of the night on the Sea of Galilee. What an amazing moment. Years ago, I was in a church in uh, Colorado doing a revelation seminar, and quite honestly, their, their screen, their, the backdrop of their screen was as big as this stage. Quite honestly, it was bigger than the church that I was actually preaching at at the time. And we were singing and we're having a really incredible time of worship. And as we were singing the revelation song, the, the backdrop that they used was water. And in the middle of the song, the Holy Spirit just kind of gave me an aha moment, and I just started laughing, and I just started crying. Well, of course he can walk on water. That's where he's from. I don't know if you know this about me. It's pretty impressive. But uh, I, I can walk on dirt. You know why I can walk on dirt? It's what I'm made of. But Yeshua is fully heaven, fully earth. And so walking on water, for him, it's no more impressive than me walking on dirt. Because he is who he is. Job declared in Job 9, he treads upon the waves of the sea. But later God asked Job, have you gone into, have you entered the springs of the sea and walked in the depths of the ocean? The, the parenthetical reality that's not there is, because I have. And you can't. The whole point of Yeshua walking on the water is that only God can do that. Only one who is fully of heaven can do that. And yet that is exactly what we cannot do, is exactly what calls Peter to do when he comes to the disciples walking on the Sea of Galilee. And Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, bid me come to you. And Jesus says, come on in, Peter, the water's fine. And everything was great. Peter steps out of the boat. He takes his stand by faith and exits the boats and, and walks upon the water. And I want to tell you something. As amazed as I am that Peter, that Jesus could walk on the water, I think we're missing the point or the other point. That where Jesus takes his stand is where Jesus calls you to take your stand. And you say, but I can't walk on water. Not yet. He calls us to do what seems impossible, but it's not impossible for him. I don't know about you, but I'm almost more impressed with Peter walking on the water than Jesus. Why? Because I know me. I don't know that I, my faith could rise to that moment as Peter. So stop picking on, you know, just stop picking on poor dumb Peter. I'd like to remind all preachers that might watch this, God chose poor dumb Peter, not you. But there's another thing we need to take note of. We're seeing something. It's our destiny. Because His destiny is ours. To take our stand by faith upon the crystal sea. Jesus calls, called to Peter to join him on the water. But there is something about that call that we need to stress about the way Jesus did it. In the Greek language, there's a thing called mood, and it's not like an emotional mood. It's a grammar tense. And when it is used, it is in the imperative mood. 
when Jesus calls Peter out of the boat, it's not, church hear me, it's not an invitation. He doesn't say, Peter, if you feel like it, come on in. He says, come. Imperative mood, meaning it's a command. Get out here. Walk on the water, Peter. Come to me where I'm at. And church, it is not our privilege to take that which is an imperative and make it a maybe if you want to. That's going to become more important next week. This moment doesn't just picture what Jesus can do. It's a moment that reveals what God is doing. He is calling us to take our stand upon the water. He has prepared for us a Makom Kodesh, a holy standing place upon the transparent, translucent, traversable sea, crystal sea that is before his throne and has his full attention. So here's the big question. How do I get there? It starts when we remember that God makes known the end from the beginning so that we can go back. We have to look at the creation so we can see the fulfillment in the end. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface, over the face of the waters. Notice that the descriptions of the earth, it describes the earth as formless and void. Now, we're going to make some big connections here. What does formless mean? I'm going to define it as this. It's incapable of being established, meaning incapable of being made firm. It's just a mush. You can't stand it. It's not firm. It's not established. God spoke the material into the world, but it hadn't yet been made firm. It was formless. If something is formless, what happens? It just dissipates. It doesn't hold its design. It is void. It is without fullness. It is empty. It is lifeless. And then it describes how the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is moving, causing motion over the darkness of the deep. Notice that it is the, the deep, the waters are described as darkness. The waters are not transparent. Light has not gone, cannot go through it. You can't see through it. It is not translucent. Light cannot pass through it. This is the, this is the state of things just before the Lord chooses to speak. Through his word, God was about to transform the earth into something that was chaos and, and unformable. He's about to fix it and form it. The waters that are darkness without life, he is about to bring forth life into that darkness. Because life cannot exist unless it is formed and firmed, and life cannot exist unless it is able to be filled with life. And so God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And the sages of Israel tell us an equally legitimate translation is simply this, let him be light. Well, who would the him be? Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. It is the Word of God spoken, which is the light and life of men, spoken into that lack of firmness, lack of light that brings forth life. And that which was formless became firmed, and that which was empty became filled, and that which was darkness became a vehicle of light through which God's glory and power could be known throughout the world. What does the psalmist say? That day after day pours forth speech. This universe is now a vehicle of revelation for who he is. Through the power of God, through the power of the word of God, who was light and life was spoken in that chaos to form it and fix it. 
to fill that which was empty and to turn darkness into life. All through the activity of God's Holy Spirit moving. But let's go back to the glassy sea. What else is described in Revelation 4? A revelation as being before the throne, before the Lord on the glassy sea? Seven lamps of fire burning. And these seven lamps are the Spirit of God. My friends, creation came forth through the activity of the Word of God, spoken into the activity of the Holy Spirit. He called forth life by speaking forth light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. In Him was life, finish it with me, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Is this beginning to make sense? We're establishing a pattern. God brought life when he spoke light into the world, and that light is Yeshua. He was the word of light and life, and he is the incarnate word of life now. Genesis 1, verses 9 and 10, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of waters. He called seas, and God saw that it was good. I want you to take notice of something in Scripture. First of all, God speaks. Then he calls. He doesn't call before he speaks. You say, well, Brent, what's the difference? You see, when he speaks, it is his creative process. When he calls, it is always related to his specific purpose. So when he creates the earth and the land, he then gives them purpose by calling it, this is earth and this is seas, and by calling it, it, he calls them to a purpose. The Hebrew word here used is very familiar to many of you because it's the Hebrew name of the book we call Leviticus. Vayikra, and he called. This word, yikra, has two very important translations. One is called. When God speaks, he establishes his will by his word. But when he calls, it is to hear that will and to heed his word. And it's always imperative. God never speaks, hey, if you want to bring forth life, bring forth life. And when he calls us to do something, to be something, it is an imperative. When he calls something or someone, it is to fulfill his word. So he calls the dry ground earth to fulfill its purpose. He calls the gathering of waters seas because they have a purpose. In Hebrew, he calls the gathered waters, a sea. The Hebrew word for this plural gathering of waters is mikvot. In the singular, it's a mikvah. If you ever go to a church, uh, this particular facility doesn't have one built in. But if you've ever been to a church that has a baptistry, that is a mikvah. That's the Hebrew word for it. It simply means a place where the water is gathered. And I want you to take note that when he calls that place, he calls it to be gathered into one place. One place. In the beginning, we see that God firmed a place for us to stand in life. He brought the light and life into the waters to transform them from a place of darkness into a place of light where light can be, you can see through it. You can, light can trans, uh, go through it. And if it's a place of light, then it's a place of life. Now he calls the waters to be gathered into one place. You know, we, I talked to you about what the temple is called. It's called Makom Kodesh, a holy standing place. Now the waters are filled with the light and life and are called Makom Echad, one place. My friends, baptism is the call to the gathered waters where God changed chaos and lack of order into firmness so that we can stand. Before you become a believer, before you become a disciple, formless and void and darkness is the perfect description of our lives. And if you don't think it's a perfect description of how you were, well, I wasn't so bad, look at our nation now. 
formless, void, and dark. But baptism is the call to be ga- to the gather words. It's our call to come to that place where that which is formless and void and dark can be transformed into a place of translucence, traversability, and transparency. Baptism is the call to the gathered waters where we who are empty are filled with the life of God. And it's the place where we are called, where God transforms us from darkness into his glorious light. And he does it all through the moving of his spirit, his breath, his wind, mixed with fire by the word of life who is our light. Jesus Christ, the anointed one of God. The word of life he spoke into this world becomes the call to my heart to find my fulfill, my fullness, my place, my purpose in his son. And so he calls us to a place, a creation place, where he will do what he did at the beginning again. You see, to take your stand in a Makom Kodesh, a holy standing place, you must take your stand in Makom Achad, one place where heaven and earth intersect with the will, the word, the power, and the spirit of God. Revelation 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign. Do you remember the definition of reign? They shall walk upon the earth. They will stand upon the earth. They will stand upon the crystal sea before God. So how much, we're almost done, how much have we learned about baptism by looking at the crystal sea and the creative process of God? Baptism, like the crystal sea, is an act of transparency. You see, when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, he doesn't just say, hey, everybody get immersed in water. What does he say first? Repent. You see, repentance is a moment where we come out of the darkness because we are finally ready to be transparent about its presence in our lives. Repentance is that moment when I have been walking in darkness and I come to realize it and I'm honest about it and I turn to walk towards the light and in the light. That's repentance. Meaning now I stand before the Lord. When I come before the Lord in repentance, please hear this. It's because I finally come to realize the truth that he sees me. Come on. He sees me. Some of you are here today. All of us probably have our secret sins. He sees us because he can see through us. And, and we can never take our place at the, on the crystal sea with the shadows of darkness dwelling in our hearts. There, there has to be a moment where we come before the Lord in transparency and say, Lord, I can't hide this from you anymore. You already know it's there. So Peter says, repent. Become transparent so that the Lord will change you. Baptism is like the crystal sea because it is a moment of translucence when that which has had no light and gave no light now becomes translucent, meaning now light can pass through me to others. Why? Because a part of baptism is confession. Confession means to say the same thing. You see, when I'm living my life outside the will of God, I'm living according to my word, not his. But confession, homilegeo, simply means to say the same word. I say the same word about my sin. I say the same thing about the truth of God. Listen, when you stand on the crystal sea, your opinion doesn't matter. 
You're not standing there telling people what you think it ought to be. When you come to God, you put your opinions, your denominational ideas, every the wounds that have shaped your heart and have controlled your thinking, all that goes away. And if God says, I'm a sinner in need of grace, then I say, I'm a sinner in need of grace. And if God says, you are now a saint sanctified by my truth, I am now a saint sanctified by the truth. I'm no longer a sinner. I am no longer walking in darkness and I am willing to say it. And the church, church, the world, why is our, our nation in the condition it's in? Because we've stopped being translucent. When we came to baptism and we immersed before the Lord, it was because we were willing to say what he said about our sins, but also about who his son is. And the minute we stopped saying the truth about either one of those things, we're back in darkness. I, I know a lot of us have, have come from a movement that, that, that fell in love with so much Hebraic background that somehow Yeshua became secondary. And pretty soon we woke up one day and we're like, Hey, where's the Holy Spirit? He's just waiting. He's waiting for a church to be transparent enough to say we've sinned and translucent enough to say, God, I want to fulfill my purpose. I want your light shining through me. I want your voice. I want my voice to become a tool for what you say. Paul says, he that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When we call to the one who's calling us, a transformational moment takes place and suddenly we become a vehicle of translucence. Baptism is a moment of transformation when we are made firmed and established to take our stand, not only before the Lord of glory, but against every persecution and trial and tribulation, as the world crumbles and falls, we stand. And as Paul said, even when you knock me down, thank you, it's just a chance for me to stand back up. And even if you kill me and think you have completely taken my ability to take to stand, I will quote the words of Job. I know that my Redeemer lives, and upon the earth I will take my stand. And I will see him with my eyes and not another. Why? My Redeemer lives. And I've taken my stand. I've been transformed by who he is. Baptism is a moment of transfer, Paul says, because he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And finally, my friends, baptism is a moment of triumph. When we, by faith, declare the truth that heaven declares, that in Jesus... We are not victims. We are victors. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Oh, church, see what John sees. The worship team can come back. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name. Where does John see us? Standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. You know, when I read that, I had to do a double take. Because every time we think of harps, we think harps of gold. No, harps of God. What does that mean? Well, we'll look what happens. 
And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteousness, your righteous acts have been revealed. Wow. With one voice, the redeemed of the Lord standing on the sea of glass, holding the harps of God, begin to sing and declare the truth of God, the truth of the Son of God. God has spoken from our beginning exactly what our future will be. And now he calls to all mankind, come and take your stand. I have prepared a place for you. How do I get there? By going transparently to the waters of life. To be filled with his spirit so that I might become translucent that light can flow through me, that I might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. What is our faith? What is it we declare? We declare one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and we will shout it and we will sing it. Though we come from every tribe, language, people, and nation, we will sing one song in one voice. Our Savior is worthy. A few weeks ago, Michael introduced us to a song, and a part of that chorus is just the word, Oh. And it's a chance for us just to shout and sing. And I love it because I I hope today that as we come to that place, you will see yourself, see the throne, see the seven lamps blazing, see the glorious rainbow encircling the throne above, see the crystal sea beneath, and see that Yeshua has created a place for you to stand with the multitudes of the redeemed. And when we all are there in that moment, words will fail us. Oh! It was all true! You are the creator of heaven and earth. You are Lord and Savior and King, and you are worthy. Stand with us now and sing to him and take your place around his throne.